Some past evenings, we've talked about the application of meditation practice to daily life through conscious speech or uh, through the relationship of meditation and family life or psychotherapy and meditation. And we also talk periodically about very traditional Buddhist teachings, the foundations of mindfulness on which this practice of awareness is based, or the factors of enlightenment. This evening I'm just back from a a week or ten day trip to the East Coast, which was primarily for teacher meetings of the group of Vipassana teachers, of the collective that I'm a part of that has been teaching retreats in this country for the past 15 years or so. And they were quite interesting, and they feel important that we all get together every year. As a collective, we tend to be a balance for one another. When one of us gets a little bit off the wall, the others can kind of remind them to come back a little to center. Um, And there seems to be some kind of collective wisdom that has helped us from having um, two great difficulties and scandals as might tend to happen when people get isolated, as you may have observed in spiritual life in a broad way. There seems something really um, inherently valuable to me in people who are in the position of being teachers and with some kind of authority or power that there be some peers and some way of learning from others rather than just being on your own. In the, in the meeting, just to share a little bit from it, some of the themes that we talked about, the first was we talked in a really personal way about how the various teachers there, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Jamie Barras, a whole variety of folks, what, what we were each growing in or learning about in our own lives. For some people, it was how to work with praise and blame, people who liked what they were doing and didn't like, and learning somehow to trust that inner place that knows what's true, no matter what the winds of opinion around are. People talked about working with fears or working with uh, body and breath in meditation. We had a long discussion about body work and various breathing exercises and how they can be helpful in settling people in practice. Some discussion about working with people who had abuse in their childhood as they meditate, uh, working with sexual abuse and physical abuse and all the kinds of issues that arise as one begins to open deeply in meditation. We talk some about the tension of adapting practice to modern life and most of us being lay people as opposed to preserving the tradition how to do both in some way, how to keep the best alive and yet make it fitting for the U.S. and in some way how to respect the variety of expressions of Dharma that we, even in that room, we all had some pretty different opinions about things. It was amazing. We'd all done the same practice, mostly in the same place, and and yet viewed Dharma and meditation in quite different ways at times. And needless to say, each person thought they were right. (laughs) So we looked at how we hold views, and not only that, how they change. One person there might have had a different view a few years ago, and now it's changed and someone else will hold that view. 
and what it means to deal with the Dharma or seeing that which is true as opposed to holding on to our views. Then I went to perform a wedding of a, of a couple of very good friends. And it, in doing so, it was the wedding of the founding president of the center in Massachusetts, who was a good friend. Uh, so a whole variety of people I hadn't seen, some in five or ten years or longer, 15 years, people who helped found the first Vipassana center in the East Coast, and people I knew from India and Asia and so forth. And it was interesting to see them all. It was like going to a reunion. They were all getting older, interestingly enough. <laughs> Some looked a whole lot older, as a matter of fact. You know, and you could see it, what their life had been like in part reflected in their faces. Some people had a lot of struggle and difficulty, and some there was more of a sense of light and lightness in their being. And it was interesting to listen to conversation, because 10 or 15 years ago it used to be traveling in Asia, or retreats you could do, new spiritual adventures, various gurus, uh, all kinds of things like that. Now the conversation was more about kids and mortgages and building onto your house and that kind of thing. And, and I know in another 10 years it's going to be about your liver or your kidneys <laughs> or your lungs, you know. You think I'm kidding, huh? <laughs> and who's died and who hasn't? And it's, it's just interesting to see those cycles of life that one notices much more clearly when you step out and go to another place, kind of back to revisit it. This evening, or tomorrow, I guess, is the, also the celebration for us in change of the equinox. Is it tomorrow? Is that right? Thursday. Okay, so it's this week in any case. And, and again, it's just another mark and another measure of the change of seasons. Could feel it very strongly today, not the equinox, but just the change of seasons, this, this weather front and all the wind and the kinds of clouds that came through from being hot to the beginning of autumn, autumn feelings. And I was looking in the paper, and there's all this stuff about Hurricane Gilbert enormous havoc and, and, and so forth, another weather front. And yet what amazed me in reading the paper was that Bangladesh, which has had a, basically a hurricane, the monsoon flooding, um, where there are 25 million homeless people and two-thirds of the country is underwater. <laughs> it's, just, it's unthinkable. I mean, it's just because the whole country is really built in the floodplain of the Brahmaputra and the Ganges River. And periodically the water rises, and it's terrible, and it's really terrible. It was not mentioned in today's paper. It wasn't even mentioned. And then there were a couple of hundred people that were killed by Hurricane Gilbert, and it, it, it has been difficult. But it's like there's so much that goes on in the world now that one thing kind of pushes the next one off of the pages of the paper. And today there's Burma again, new riots, or there's changes in Haiti. And most of the news, is, as is often the case, is not very good. So you look. I look, anyway, at people's faces that I haven't seen in 10 years and watch them age, and I read the papers, and I look at my own life, and I see the 
changing seasons. The equinox and the, the autumn begins and some people die and some people have cancer or AIDS and some people are getting ready to die. Some are getting born and there are these seasons. And then you look at the difficulties in a grander scale of the world around. And a question that arises in spiritual practice is how to stay conscious with those changes. How to stay aware and also how to keep one's heart and, and being open. Especially when there is something with the enormity of Bangladesh or the other really great difficulties currently facing people on the earth. So it doesn't just get moved off to the back pages of our own mind or left out of our consciousness. There's a joke that's told among research sci scientists and research psychologists of this couple, this man and woman who just finished making love, and one says to the other, that was very pleasant for you, how was it for me? <laughs> And there's a way, I mean, this is kind of the scientific method, right? That you distance yourself a little bit and you observe and you write down what you imagine the rat feels about their experience or whatever it happens to be. Um, but there's some way, because of the communication worldwide network of communication and the speed of our times and our culture and the scientific mental quality of our our particular way worldview that we all do that that we all distance ourselves in some ways or that the difficulties in our own families and lives and around us and then the world in greater ways become overwhelming and so we either cut them off or we in some way um, distance ourselves so as not to feel them. And sometimes people get the impression that meditation practice is to do that. It's to sit and distance yourself so that nothing will touch you. But in some way, it's quite the opposite from that. In a, in a more fundamental way, it's not a withdrawal from the world, from its sorrows and its struggles and its joys and its beauties. It's not a moving up into ideals or thinking about things, but rather to meditate is a process of opening, of touching, of feeling, of listening. Spiritual practice or the practice of the Dharma, Dharma is a Sanskrit word, which means the truth or the law, the way things are, the universal law. Spiritual practice, Dharma practice, means in some way to face the truth, to touch it, to live in the truth, to see our sorrows and our joys, and to face the truth that we are connected, that we can't live in an isolated way, that our breath and our water and the air and the, the environment and all of those are what sustain our own life and the lives of others around. Spiritual practice then isn't a removal from the world, but it's somehow a learning to enter it 
and to open to it in a true way. It asks something very difficult from people. It asks us to live by what we truly value, to listen inside to our hearts and to sense from that inner listening what really matters to us, and then to live our life connected with our heart, connected with our values, to live our life ethically in some way. To live ethically means to act in ways that don't harm or don't create suffering because we're enough in touch with ourselves to see that that's suffering for us as well. Not saying how you should act, but to follow your inner values. Now, we live in a society, it's pervasively so, which teaches consumer happiness. And this is not a new thing that I say or that you haven't noticed. But yet, it's worth repeating because it's so pervasive. It teaches that happiness will come from the freshest croissant and the quietest foreign car and the, you know, whatever it is, the, the, the what? The loudest stereo, right. With the widest, widest range of uh, audio features, yes. And it's not really what makes for human happiness. <clears throat> I'm not saying that it's, that it's wrong in any way to have physical comfort and to appreciate the beauty of where we live or the, the circumstances of our lives which give us comfort and, and lovely things. But it doesn't have a whole lot to do with happiness. Uh, we all know that. And you know people who are, who are really rich and miserable and people who are really rich and happy. You know people who are poor and miserable and people who are poor and quite happy. There's a story of an old Mexican Indian man who was relatively wise, and he used to sit in the marketplace and sell the onions that he grew on his farm, those strings of onions like braids of garlic. And one day somebody came up to him, a man, and said, I'd like to buy all your onions that morning. And he said, no. He said, you could have a few strings, but that's all. <laughs> and the man was taken aback, and he said, aren't you here to sell the onions? And... Uh, Carlos, or whatever this Indian man's name was, he said, I love this market. I love the colors of it, the smell of the fresh food, the, the colors of the peppers. I love the crowds. I like to see who comes in and, and who goes by. I like to talk to Pedro over there and say, Buenos dias to everyone who walks by. And to sell all the onions, my day would be ended. He said, it would be to sell a day of my life. No thank you, senor. I sell you a few onions. What an amazing thing. And this is the question that's asked. What do we want to do with our days? And can we connect with that voice within us 
that allows us to live out of that which we value. What do you sell? You know, if it's not onions. I sell therapy. <laughs> you know, you got to pay the bill somehow. Right. And and what product or what is it? And and how do you relate to it? Is it the sales or it is is it the the pleasure of of human life and the caring for human life? <coughs> Read in the paper today, Gretchen Carlson, who's the new Miss America, was after Atlantic City went to this yacht and then went to Maxime's Hotel in Paris and went to, on the David Letterman show and then was introduced to all the sponsors of the pageant and saw all their products that she was going to help sell. And then she said, you did it, now you have to figure out if you're glad whether you did it. <laughs> there was another Miss America quoted, I think it was in Newsweek a few years ago, she was Miss America in the early 50s from, from Kentucky, she had been Miss Kentucky and one of the Miss Americas like 1952 or something and she was opening some dam or whatever she was doing still as a reigning ex-Miss America and the quote underneath she said I'm tired, I'm so tired of smiling <laughs> Thirty years of smiling. <laughs> when our life, our actions, our relations to the people around us, to our work, to the community, are connected to our hearts, and when they're connected to what's true, even in difficult times, we have a sense of well-being or integrity, maybe especially in hard times, even in going through the great difficulties that every single person has at some times in your life, of illness or, or death of people that you love or, or loss or grief. To keep yourself connected with what's true, with the Dharma in yourself, with your heart, gives you a kind of strength, gives all of us that, especially in difficult times. It gives a wonderful sense of, of well-being. The Buddha said, the fragrance, the perfume of jasmine and tagara spreads widely in the wind, but the perfume of virtue of a life well-lived rises even to the gods, even to the heavens. And you feel it. You know in yourself how it feels to live with integrity. And you know when you meet a person whose speech is straightforward and true, or whose life and actions reflects what they value. There's a sense of wholeness, of stillness that's really wonderful. So one part of the Dharma, of living a life of the spirit or the Dharma, is to listen to our inner Dharma and to stay connected enough with that so we live what we value. A second part of it, beside looking at that in our lives, 
is to see the Dharma in another sense. The Dharma means the eternal dance. It means the it means the the dance of birth and death and day and night and the change of seasons. And to see the Dharma is to open ourselves enough to look at the process of people aging and talking about whether it's their kids or their mortgages or their livers and kidneys or their their losses and to look at that which is being born in this world the, the babies and the, the new things that are arising the creativity of life and to look directly at the sorrows and there's a lot of sorrows to see the difficulties of 40 or 50 countries that are at war or in revolution. There's the birth and death of nations, just as there's the birth and death of individuals. There's the birth and death of civilizations. This may be, it's hard to know whether we're in in the decline of the Western American civilization or not. Some days it certainly feels like it, and other days it's more hopeful. But it's to begin to see with the eyes of wisdom the truth that everything changes. That everything which is born has a certain dance and then ends that dance. And to let that into our hearts more and more deeply to see that the sorrows and the joys the birth and the death are the same thing, that they're interconnected. And as practice gets deeper, which is to say, as one's awareness grows or one's wisdom grows, what happens is you see impermanence more fully. Wherever you look, you see that person or that sunset or the plants or the, the ideas or the social system or whatever in a process of change and of death and renewal over and over. You see it in yourself, in your family, in your loved ones. People leave home, they go to do new things, they change. Wisdom is seeing this truly and deeply. You also see that there's less and less in some ways that you can do about it. And you can love and you can certainly work to change the things that are unjust in the world. And it's wonderful to do so, to work to stop war or to to feed those who are hungry. Incredibly important. But there's another place where you also see that it's this enormous dance. And you can do what your heart allows you and gives you the strength, but you can't possess it. We really don't possess anything, not even our own bodies. And you look in the mirror and you say, okay, you're mine and I want you to do what I want you to do. Does it listen? And you can train it a little bit. You jog it, you know, you massage it, you hot tub it, whatever you do to it, you know. Take care. It's fine. It's good. It's your vehicle. But basically, and you can love it and honor it. You can't say, don't grow old. Do not not another day older. Stop. No more wrinkles. 
no more lost hair. It, the Dharma is to really sense and feel in your cells, in your heart, in your being, the laws of change of life. I was out in this trip. Um, we stayed two days on a 50-foot schooner uh, in Hyannis Harbor and, and along the Cape in Cape Cod, which belongs, hard to tell these days about relatives, to kind of a relative of mine. It's my wife's ex-husband, whatever he's called. <laughs> I like him very much, actually. He has very good taste, I will say that. <laughs> and it's a beautiful boat. It's an old wooden schooner. And it says on it, there's a thing that's carved when you go down into the berths down below. And it's a beautiful carving, and it says, Dear God, the ocean is so great, and my boat is so small. And that's all it says. It's really beautiful. And it's like a prayer in some way. And it's, and it's very meaningful when you're out on a boat in the ocean, even in a 50-foot schooner. So this is the week of the equinox. And somehow that balance for a moment, for a time, that balance outwardly is something that we can discover in ourselves. That balance, not of withdrawing from the world, but of discovering some greatness of our heart. Dear God, the ocean is so great and my boat is so small. And yet finding some way to allow ourselves to be touched, to allow and let through the changes of seasons, the storms, the sorrow and the death, the beauty and the birth, the creativity, to touch our hearts and our minds, to let them pass into us and feel our connection with them, to open our being, and then to live from that truth, from that dharma of change. In it all, to find a capacity to love to find that greatness of heart, which is talked about in every spiritual tradition, that awakening, that can face that and touch all of that and bring into each day, into our life, a spirit of awareness and of love. And our sitting together is really just a way to find that in ourselves, to remind ourselves of that place, to connect with that still point or that place of wisdom that knows that everything that's born changes and dies, that knows the cycles of nature and the dance. And then to become still enough to live our life from that place in our heart. So I close with a reading from the I Ching, one of the hexagrams. If a well is being lined with stone, it cannot be used for a while while the work is going on. But the work is not in vain. The result is that the water remains clear for a hundred years. A person must put themselves in order likewise. During such a time, perhaps, they cannot do much for others but by enhancing their powers and abilities through inner development, 
they can accomplish all the more in a clear way from then on. And in some way, just the simple act of sitting, of taking time each day, or to come here to sit together, or to go in the mountains and walk in silence, is to renew ourselves, to let the well become clear, to connect with the heart, to let go a little bit of the busyness, and make enough space to listen to the seasons, to feel the change of our breath, to notice our aging and the things which are being born around us at the same time, and to live from our wisdom, and to live from our hearts. That's all I have to say tonight. It's nice to be back and sit together. One of the things that we talked about at the teacher meetings, even in finding this array of new psychologies and techniques of breath and body work and so forth that really can help to open people very quickly, was how we were all, I think almost all of us anyway, extremely reluctant to add any of that into the retreats that we teach. And then I like to teach workshops and do all those things. But there's something about going to a meditation retreat and being asked to be silent and to sit and walk and listen, basically, to the heart and body and mind, to pay attention. And that's all that's extremely refreshing in our complicated times. That more than adding things, it's making a place to listen and a place to in a sense, to come back to oneself. Are there questions or thoughts or comments? Whatever you like, please. The question is, will Spirit Rock be available for people to come to occasionally to sit? Um, two, two things to say. Yes, it will. I mean, it'll be in a retreat center that's open, and there'll be day-longs, and they'll be sit there when it's built, built, if we can raise enough money to build the buildings, which we will. It'll take its whatever time it takes. But it'll be a place for sittings like this group every week or more often. Uh, it will certainly be a place for day-long retreats and month-long retreats and open to anyone. But more than that, in the next few weeks we're going to give a questionnaire to the whole Sangha. It will be sent out from the office about what kinds of retreats and programs people would like to see there and use that for helping to determine the programs over the next year or two as we get going. And once that's sent out, it'll be sent out in the next week, once, once you've gotten it, then we'll take time some night to have a discussion about that because it would be interesting to hear from people in a personal way 
what would serve them, what would serve each of you best in your practice. Because it really belongs to people who sit. Everybody seems rather peaceful tonight. Or are you just tired? <laughs> Both, I see. Please. A lot of other people who would love to hear it. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, it's amazing. And there are all kinds of answers. I don't even know whether they're right. There are answers that say, well, we, we didn't learn our lesson, so we have to take the course another time. I'd like to sign up for 101 again, please, you know, one more year, semester of it. Or there are reasons that say, because everything is in cycle and that a deeper spiritual understanding might be also to know that no matter how clear or high or open you get, it too is just a part of your season. And that in the nature of life, there's new losses and new letting goes that will come and there'll be a whole other set of grief, even if you've gotten very open. And in some way, what I hear from your initial, what few sentences that you said, is you, you said there's a loss, and it sounds like a, actually a very big loss, probably a loss of all the love and energy you invested, as you say, and of a friendship that must have been there to start that, and probably a lot of hopes as well. And, and in that, as, as, as true with every important loss, there's anger and sorrow and bargaining and rehashing and all the stages of grieving. And, um, honor that, that it's a process of some grieving, that letting go doesn't just happen. In some way, it's almost like your heart needs to cry a bit or it needs to be okay to feel that in order to digest it and touch it and move when it's time to something that comes next. Yeah. Maybe so right now, and people can cut themselves off and not feel. 
but it, um, in the end, it all balances out. <laughs> You'll find out. <laughs> it does. It just, you'll see. The thing that I found that's interesting about repeating old patterns and so forth and why we go back is, and, and I'm not sure whether this is better or worse, sometimes it seems better, other times it's horrifying. They seem to speed up so that it's possible you might do it again, but maybe it'll just take you three months next time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.